Book of Ephesians here tonight. I'm excited about this one. Man, just a great book. And I think, you know, we could say that about every book we're in, and I probably do, especially going through, you know, the Bible for 30,000 feet. Every book, every time we get chances to cruise through scriptures, we just, you know, there's something for all of us there to where we can say, what a great, but, but Ephesians really, I think, just stands out a little bit. You know, probably next to Romans in the New Testament, it's probably one of the, the great, deep, you know, I don't even know the words to say. Just one of these great truths that I think really ground us and, and become foundational for the gospel and the truth of the work of grace and justification uh, of the Lord and what he's done for us. So just a man, I hope this just blesses you and enriches you tonight because uh, Ephesians is certainly a, a special book. Now, Ephesians is um, one of those prison epistles. It's It's the first of the prison epistles that's been written and uh, the other prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so here's Paul writing about these glorious truths that we have in Jesus. And he's writing from prison as a prisoner, right? Those are the times typically where you're looking at this and going, Jesus, what about all these promises? What about all these truths? What about this life that I'm supposed to have in you? I'm in prison. But that's not what Paul's doing. He's going, despite my conditions, my situation, he's realizing that God has been so good. And God is good. And, and these are truths that we hold on to. Now, we know that Paul spent a couple years in under house arrest there at Caesarea Maritima as he a way to kind of go to Rome. And then once he was in Rome again, he's under house arrest while he's awaiting trial there before Emperor Nero. So the time of this writing would put this somewhere around 60 to 62 AD. Many believe it's there in Rome that Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church. And, and many believe that this was a letter that was not just intended for one church in particular, but was written really to eventually go out to many churches and to kind of be a widespread letter of, of encouragement to people. There's no, you know, real addressing of any kind of particular situation or need for correction in any area of a specific church. So Paul's just writing really to, to just remind everybody what they have in Christ. Now, Ephesus, this place that he's writing to, was the capital of the, the Roman province of Asia. It was a prosperous commercial center as it sat at the intersection of many trade routes. Ephesus, uh, also there, in, in, it's in modern-day Turkey. Here's another kind of, do you see Ephesus up there? So I was on one of his missionary journeys. Here's a closer map there. So Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And, of course, it was an important cultural center of the ancient world, only behind Rome and Alexandria. So Ephesus was a very prominent place. It was also a center of pagan worship as it had the temple of Diana or Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world, right? So it had this great temple there of Diana. So it became a very pagan place, but a, a, a big epicenter of just culture and commerce as well. Now, a little of the history here. Background is primarily found in Acts chapter 
19 of Paul's journey to Ephesus. But remember in, in Acts 18, we hear that Paul had come to Corinth and he met Aquila and Priscilla with whom he started to work with. Aquila and Priscilla then moved on to Ephesus where they encountered Apollos who had begun teaching the scripture to people there. Paulus, it says, was an eloquent man. He, he knew he was a man that had great understanding in, in the scriptures, but he knew what the scripture said about Jesus, but he didn't quite know the Jesus of scriptures. So they had to come alongside, kind of disciple him. And so Paul was eventually moved, went back with Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul had come into Ephesus and encountered some believers there, you know, and he began to minister to them and pour in more to them. And in fact, Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than any other city that he had traveled to. Three years, Paul was there where he just began to see the church begin to flourish and a great work going on where even other churches were, were going out. The work was beginning to spread. But then they also encountered, because of the work that was going on, what was happening is all the silversmiths that were making their idols and things. Again, big pagan uh, center there with a temple, the down going on. Well, idol, idolatry is a big business. But now because of the preaching of scripture, people getting saved, well, all these people that were making idols were going out of business. And they began to kind of talk and discuss these things and sort of had a little bit of a rally, a, a protest in a sense. And people began to flood into the theater and there began almost to be a big riot. And so Paul had to kind of leave the city out of just safety almost for his, his own life. And so uh, that was kind of the background to what was going on there in Ephesus. But three years Paul stayed and so we see a flourishing work taking place. Paul left and he had some of his companions continue to minister in Ephesus. Timothy and Tychicus were two of those people. And then we know that John, the apostle John, was eventually kind of headquartered in, in Ephesus there before Patmos banishment. Some believe that he was even released after Patmos and continued to live in, in Ephesus afterwards. So Paul wrote this letter to show those in Ephesus and, I believe, believers everywhere, ultimately really the, the purpose of God. That was to bring all things under Christ. And essentially for us to experience that blessed life in Christ. Now, in his many letters, Paul often uses the phrase in Christ. But the letter of Ephesians contains the most examples of that term in Christ. And he'll also have the words, you know, with Christ or through Christ all used kind of interchangeably. But this idea of being in Christ. So as we go through this book of Ephesians... We're going to look at some of these wonderful truths that will be popping out to us as we see what life in Christ is like. Here's a, a few of them right here. Have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Verse 10. That God in the fullness of time would gather together all of us as one in Christ. And that God has raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Also, chapter 2, verse 7, that God would show the incredible grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. That word is workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. We who once were far have been brought near to God in Christ. We have access to the Father through the Spirit. We have boldness and confident access to approach God. And we have the forgiveness of God. These are all realities that we enjoy now by being in Christ. Sweet truths for us to here today. Now, ultimately, Paul wants his readers to know this incredible life that we can have in Christ. Jesus came, you see, to give his life, and he came to give us his righteousness so that we could experience his life. Life is righteousness, 
and righteousness is life. Real life and righteousness are one and the same because the opposite of righteousness is carnality and carnality is death. Therefore, the abundant life Christ gives us is a life of righteousness because he's given us his life and his life is a righteous life. This eternal life of righteousness is what Christ gives to all who ask. This is the life that God now has predestined us to grow into as we grow out from the grace that is in Christ. We are predestined to be conformed into his image because he will finish the good work he started. This good work is having a people living in the fullness of God, the fullness of a relationship, the fullness of his holiness, his righteousness, which is his life. So good to know. So like what Paul often does in his letters is he starts with doctrine and then he moves into the duty that comes from that. He goes through the principles to really lay out the, the practice for us. He sets the wonderful promises that we have in Christ before moving into the practical application of those things. That's what we're going to be seeing here in the book of Ephesians. The outline would go much like this. Chapters 1 to 3 is doctrine. Really reveals our riches in Christ. Shows where we sit because of Christ. But then chapters 4 to 6 moves on to, to duty. Our responsibilities now in Christ. Shows us how we walk now. And so I, I, I'm grateful for that. That Paul never comes out just with a big old list of, Hey guys, here's how you need to do this. Here's what you need to do. Here's his performance, you know, kind of that I'm, I'm looking for. He doesn't do that. He says, let me share with you what Christ has done for you. Let me share with you what you have in Christ. Because that then becomes the great motivator to living for him. If we try to set morality and all these rules and lists before understanding the truth of the gospel, then we're just going to be putting on a bunch of self-righteous works. And our heart isn't going to be behind it. So Paul always lays out that doctrine to say, let me share with you what God has done in and through Christ for you. And let that be the motivator to living. So that's what we're going to be seeing as we go through this. Now, chapter 1. In, in the beginning of this letter, Paul jumps into an incredible doxology. and An expression of praise to God for all that he's done for us. And the list is numerous. In fact, Paul is so overwhelmed by all this that God, that he sees God doing in and through Christ that he writes verses 3 to 14 as one continuous run-on sentence. It's like Paul can't even stop to put a period in there because he's just so overwhelmed by the goodness of God. So let's read through that here, verse 3 to 14 of chapter 1. And again, just keep in mind, this is as Paul just, I think, just being so caught up and overwhelmed at just the, the gloriousness of Christ that he just, he can't stop. So it says here, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, 
both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So right there in those first few verses at the very onset of this epistle, this letter, Paul just wants to lay out just the gloriousness that we have in Christ, the many blessings by which we have been blessed in and through Christ. It's an amazing work that's been done for us. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Hey, I I can't fathom that. To think about that. Every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places, I'm just like, man, I'd be good with just, you know, a couple. But every spiritual blessing, I mean, I can't even wrap my brain around what that looks like or what that is. I receive it. I'm glad for it. But I can't fully comprehend it. And so Paul breaks down some of the many ways that we've been blessed. Tells us these things. And this is, you know, from those verses here, we're chosen in him. We've been predestined to adoption of sons. We've been accepted in the beloved. We have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins. The mystery of his will has been made known to us. We've been gathered together as one in Christ. We have an inheritance. And we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise now what's interesting is that this breaks down to really see the blessings first of all from god the father that we see in those first few from verses three to six the blessings from god the father but then we also see the blessings from god the son that he's redeemed us through his blood we see the forgiveness of sins mystery of his will has been revealed to us and then it breaks down to see the blessings from god the holy spirit that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise that he's that guarantee for us. So we see this all breaking down into the glorious working of the Trinity, all taking part here by which we receive these blessings of God. Let me just highlight a few of these things that we've been chosen. Someone expressed that there is a great, you know, arch that everyone who wants to be saved must walk through. On top of the arch, it says, whosoever will may come. And as they walk through it, they see the arch reads on the other side, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You see, a lot of people look at this idea of being chosen and think, that's not really fair. Why does God choose some and not choose others? I don't think that's the case at all. I think simply that God knows those who are going to choose him. You see, the invitation has been given to all. It'd be very cruel of God to give the invitation to all. Whosoever will may come. You know, all through John, we saw the invitation being given to come and partake of his life. You know, be very cruel if someone says god thank you for the invitation i accept oh no 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 i wasn't talking about you no you're not one of the chosen ones that'd be very cruel to god that's not the case but you see there's something at play here that is hard for us to really again reconcile because the bible teaches that god elects but he's also given us free will i believe the bible teaches both sides and we may not fully understand all that until we're in heaven but we will see that you know like that art shows, we walk through whosoever will may come. As we get in and we look on the other side, it says chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God knows exactly those who are his. Charles Spurgeon once said, God chose me before I came into the world because if he had waited until I got here, he never would have chosen me. I think that could be true for a lot of us. 
I'm thankful I'm chosen before the foundation of the world. How does that work? I don't know. Now, you might sit here and go, well, how do I know if I'm one of the chosen? Receive Jesus and you'll realize you're one of the chosen. It's as simple as that. There's no debate. There's no argument. There's no rustling. Am I one of the elect? Am I one of the chosen ones? Receive Jesus and you'll find that you are. It's as simple as that. So we see that we're chosen. We also see that we're adopted. This is a wonderful truth and reality for us to think that we, we've been adopted now into the family of God. William Barclay put, uh, explains it this way. When the process had been completed, the adoption was indeed complete. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and lost absolutely all rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. Think about that when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, that we've been adopted in his sons, daughters, children of God, to where everything that was kind of holding you back in your former life is erased. It's gone. It's taken care of. You're brought in as legitimate, new people with all the rights now of a natural-born child. Praise the Lord for that. That's what's happened for us. See, we were under the, the power of this world, but now all our, our previous debts to sin, they're, they're wiped out. We're now a new person in Christ. We're now a part of his family. We also see that the mystery of his will has been revealed to us there in verse 9. Now, what is the mystery? It's something that Paul gives a lot of time to in this book that you'll see repeated throughout the book of Ephesians. A mystery, as Paul uses the word, was not something to figure out like in the game of Clue. All right, I think it was Colonel Mustard in the dining room with the candlestick or whatever it was, right? You know, it's not something to figure out to try to put all the pieces together. You see, a mystery as used in the New Testament was something that was originally concealed but is now revealed in the New Testament. It's now revealed in and through Jesus. It's something that is understandable to the one who's living for Christ. So the mystery was something that had been kept under wraps in the Old Testament, but is now revealed in the New Testament through Christ. Something that God wants to make us aware of and see and, and see this plan of God, God unfolding. Such a wonderful thing to see, isn't it, for us now to be part of, of understanding the mystery, to go, wow, I look in the, New, in the Old Testament, see all these things at play, at work. That was just God, you know, saying this is just kind of the, the, the unwrapping of this mystery. It, it may not make sense fully right now, but you're going to see the plan that I've got in store and how it's going to be revealed in the New Testament and it's going to be a glorious work. That's what we get to be a part of here. And we get to be, a, we are a part of that mystery as we're going to see here coming up. Now, we also see that we have an inheritance. We're not living for this world. We have something far greater to look forward to and live for. First Peter 1, verse 3 to 4 says it this way. We're going to be getting into this Sunday morning. I'm excited for that. Look, we got our banner up already. First, second Peter coming up here. I'm pumped for this series. But here's what Peter writes. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible 
and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Hey, my kids can receive an inheritance from me. They, they may not appreciate some of the inheritance. There might be kind of stuff that's falling apart. <laughs> that's not going to be lasting. But here's an inheritance that we have in Christ that is our hope that we look forward to that is incorruptible, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. That's our great hope. That's what, what we're living for. It's for eternity. And everything we do now can have value for all of eternity if it's done in and for Christ. And so Paul prays just a wonderful prayer at the closing of chapter 1 there, starting in verse 15, where, again, he just asks, or, or he's just thanking God for all these things. And he's praying for that spiritual insight and in that, that spiritual view of these things for all of his audience here to receive these things, you see. He says there at the end of verse 18, know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You see, we can all hear these wonderful truths, all these blessings that we're blessed with in the heavenly places in Christ. We can all hear about these things and go, oh, that's great. I like that. But yet, we can be those that never fully accept them as ours. Have we appropriated these great realities and riches in Christ? It's like writing a check to somebody. Say, here you go, $1,000. And the person goes, oh, man, thank you. That's so awesome. Put that in the back pocket. Man, I feel so rich. Got $1,000. Listen, that means nothing to you unless you go and cash that. Apply that for yourself. That's what the Lord's done. He's kind of written that check of just an abundant amount of riches for us. But if we cash that, if we receive that, if we appropriate that for ourselves, Paul prays that you may know these things personally and appropriate them internally for you, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's all of us saints. Ones that are set apart. We're not talking about those that have died before us that have done some good works. Saints are those that are in Christ. Like what J. Vernon McGee says, you're either a saint or an ain't. It's one or the other. You're saints today. And you have a great inheritance. Have you applied that, appropriate that to your life? Are you you enjoying that? Now, what can stop us from accepting these glorious truths? I think one thing is, our own guilt or feeling of unworthiness. Well, Paul has that covered in the next chapter, chapter 2. Look at what it says here in verse 1. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in what in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he's raised us up together. And he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone 
should boast. So what a most wonderful series of scriptures that we have here to start chapter 2. And and Paul lets us know that the work of salvation is not dependent on our good standing. In fact, we were the furthest from standing because we were dead in trespasses and sins. A corpse can't do a whole lot. Certainly not stand or present yourself in good standing before God. You see, as verse 3 says, we deserved wrath. We were, by nature, children of wrath, it says. But, but... Don't you love that verse four? But the Bible is full of big butts. And I'm thankful for that. Yeah, in the right way, right? You know what I'm saying here. But God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive together with Christ. You see, God came and did the work of lifting us up from the pit, from the valley of death. We've been saved from death, from judgment, we've been saved from the wrath of God by His grace. And it's received through faith. This is what Paul is saying. Given you by faith. Now, why did he do this? Because you were so worthy? Because you were so special? No, it says he did this because it reveals the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see that there in verse 7? That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. In his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, God, I think, gets a kick out of showing his love and generosity. And his glory is on full display by reaching down and saving people like you and me. People so undeserving, so unworthy, and doing a work in us to save us. It reveals his glory. His generosity, his love is on full display. You're not saved because you deserved it. Or because you're good, you're saved solely by his grace. And how we need to grow in grace, how we need to understand grace, how we need to live in grace. Otherwise, there's a lot of people that read through chapter one and go, oh, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't fit me. Oh, I don't feel loved and I don't feel accepted and beloved. I don't feel forgiven. And these are all things that happen that put doubt in our mind because when we begin to think that we've got to earn our way, when we don't read through chapter 2 and realize, listen, everybody, it's by grace you're saved, not of works. It's a gift of God so that nobody can boast. It's grace. It's all about grace. So keep that in mind. And if you're not saved by your works... You don't keep your salvation by your works. You see, a lot of people kind of slip back into that mode now after being saved of trying to think, oh, maybe it's by my works that I'm going to please God now. And we kind of fall into that Galatians 3 trap that Paul talked about last week where he says, oh, foolish Galatians, are you now being perfect in the, or trying to perfect in the flesh what has begun in the spirit? See, we must remain in and hold tightly to grace. It's all about grace. It's all about what Jesus has done for you and how we need to simply receive that and live in it and enjoy it. Because then, chapter 1, and you read the riches we have in Christ, you just sit there and go, oh, thank you, Lord. This is so wonderful. This is so glorious to see all these things that apply to me. But if you're not living in grace, you're going to go, no. That doesn't fit me. I'm not worthy of that. I'm not deserving of that. 
It's a grace. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. But it doesn't mean now that we're saved just to go and do what we want. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to do good works. And Paul makes that clear in verse 10 of chapter 2. What does he say there? He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not, don't, don't misread that and think that we're creating Christ Jesus by good works. No, we're created by Christ Jesus for good works. To serve him, to, to honor him, to, to continue to reveal the glory of God, the riches of Jesus. We're living in these things to demonstrate the greatness of God. To live for his glory. He's created us. He's, we're his workmanship. We're that, that, like that work of art is what it really means. That God is continuing to refine and demonstrate his grace and his goodness through. We begin to be put on display. Just like an artist. Say, look at this masterpiece I've created. Not just to go, wow, that is incredible. How did all the paint get there? That, that, that piece of canvas really did a great job. No. It's to go, wow, that is an incredible artist. That's what we are to demonstrate. It's the work of God. And so now because of this unearned salvation by grace, it means that everyone has an opportunity to be saved. And Paul's beating this drum pretty loudly in Ephesians to reveal this work that God has intended for all people to come together and be one in Christ. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. For he himself is our peace who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him... We both have access by one spirit to the Father. See, this very reality of Jew and Gentile coming together into one body, the body of Christ, is what Paul addresses as his great mystery in chapter 3. It was a big deal in this day as Jews sort of, you know, looked at Gentiles as like, man, they're, they're nothing. They're defiled people. We can't have anything to do with them. But as they began to see Gentiles coming to know God, and the church now being formed where there were Jews and Gentiles, they had to kind of sort through this newfound relationship and figure out this kind of dynamic that was at play now within the church as Jews and Gentiles gathered together. It was unusual and unheard of, but Paul is revealing here, this has been the plan of God all along. This isn't some afterthought. This is always what God has intended. This has been the mystery that's been at play here. Look at chapter 3. Paul says in verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation 
he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Paul says of which, in verse 7, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. See, Paul says this mystery has now been revealed by which we see Gentiles can now come in and be a part of the same body with Jews and be fellow heirs of all the promises of God. For a Jew to hear that, I must have thought, wait a second here now. Paul, you've gone too far. You're off your rocker here. No, no, no. We're the chosen ones. We're the ones that receive all the promises of God. And Paul says, oh, hold on. No, this is a work that God's had in store. This mystery that at first was a little bit concealed in the Old Testament. But now it's been revealed that this is something that God is doing to bring all people together by his grace. It's not by following the law. It's not by being Hebrew people. It's not by having the command. It's by being in Christ. And all people are invited to be in Christ and receive the blessings of Christ and to be part of this great family now. And, and we, too, need to take these realities to heart because in a day where racism, bigotry is as tense as ever, we need to know that there are no divisions in the body of Christ. All are invited in. All are accepted. We can never look at another person and think, hey, what are you doing here? You don't really belong in the church. This doesn't apply to you. We can never think that way. We should never have an attitude. That looks down on somebody and think, oh, I don't know about them. They don't have any business being here in the church. You know, some Christians can have that kind of attitude. A judgmental attitude just by looking at the exterior, looking at the, the look of some people, thinking they don't, they don't fit here. You see, we're all in need of grace. And it's important that we live in grace and we live out grace. And the more that we... Living out grace, exercising grace, demonstrating grace in and among our relationships with one another. Because that's what God has done. He's, he's torn down that middle wall of separation that once was put up where, I mean, Israel... They were, they were bigots. They looked at everybody else. And so they weren't, they weren't worthy. It's just us. And God had to do a work. But he revealed that, and that middle wall is being torn down. And those that were once far off have been brought near. That's what God wants to do with the world around us. Do you look at the world with that kind of bigotry? Judgment? prejudice see those people that seem farthest away do you understand the heart of god that he wants to bring them near to him are we being that that kind of conduit are we being that kind of avenue by which people may see and know the love and the grace of god if they hang out with you 
Are they going to say, I want to come to your church? Or are they going to say, if that's what Christianity looks like, I don't really want anything to do with it. So Paul moves on now in the next three chapters to show what this kind of looks like now. What does it mean to live this life in a way that's going to demonstrate these things? We've looked at the what, but now we need to look at the how. Our, our outline here is seen, first of all, this doctrine that Paul lays out, the riches that we have in Christ. But now we look at our duty, the, the responsibilities in Christ and how we walk. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So Paul, listen, he's not getting not getting angry or frustrated with his readers. He's beseeching them. Sometimes we think beseech, it's a, a word that gets lost kind of in our English vocabulary today. You know, beseech is the word parakaleo. It's the same form of the word as parakletos, which Jesus used to speak of the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the one that will come alongside you. And that's what Paul means here when he says, I beseech you. He's saying, I'm calling you to come alongside in these things, urging to come to one's aid. He's, he's urging and pleading with his readers to walk worthy. And it's for their benefit and the benefit of others. But walk worthy of what? Worthy of the blessings that we were shown already in the first three chapters. Of the wonderful grace and the glories of Christ. The blessings that we have there. Chapter 1 verse 3 to 14. All the things that we have now in Christ. Walk worthy of those things. We saw that, the, the, that God has made us saints. Now we're to live like it. We must be practicing what we preach, living what we're believing. And it's our walk that shows that to be true. It's our walk that shows that to be true. Let's say, for instance, uh, I've received a free membership at a gym. All right? Because I wouldn't be foolish enough to pay for a membership at a gym and suffer in that and have to pay for my suffering. For those of you that do, that's okay. We'll pray for you, but... Let's say I receive a free membership at a gym and it comes with a free one-on-one trainer. Pretty cool. All right. I go walking in that gym. I see a guy sitting over on a, a bench, you know, doing some reps, doing some curls. And the woman at the desk says, hey, great. Okay. Your trainer's right over here. Calls over. Hey, Frankie, your 10 o'clock appointment is here. Suddenly this five foot two man gets up from the bench 300 pounds he's got a two liter coke in one hand a smoky hot dog in the other hand that is the curls that he's doing up to his mouth i'm gonna look at that and go this this doesn't add up that doesn't make sense this doesn't look like a trainer does it all right he's completely messing up with the look here his his walk is not matching up with who he's supposed to be right now my initial reaction is, this guy's not practicing what he preaches. He's not walking worthy of his calling. If he's to be a trainer, you're expecting somebody to be a little bit ripped, right? Muscular, kind of like 
what you, you know, see here before you. Kind of like that sort of look here is what you would expect when you see a trainer at a gym. Not a five foot two man, 300 pounds, eating a smoky hot dog. You're going to go, I'm, I, I see now why you're giving out free memberships, right? It's not, not working here. But the problem is this. Where there's a lack of exemplary living, there will be a lack of eternal believing. Where there's compromise and contradiction, there's confusion in conviction. Here's the deal. Your walk matters. Your walk matters. So, Paul says, walk worthy of who you are in Christ. Walk worthy of who you are in Christ. And this isn't about walking in a, in a way to be worthy of your salvation. Because then you fall prey to, again, earning your way. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about walking worthy of earning your salvation. This is about walking in a way that reflects what Jesus has already done for you. So what does that look like? Well, Paul breaks that down again here already. uh, We've read it, but verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. A, A worthy walk is going to show itself in humility in gentleness and and in kindness. It's seen through patience and letting love rule, where we're not looking at ourselves as high and mighty over other people, more special, more prominent. Lowliness, humility, kindness, generosity, loving other people. Love is where you're not looking at yourself only. See, love becomes the defining character that keeps unity. That was a new way of describing Christian love in that day, agape, it meant that nothing a person does will sway us from seeking his highest good. Because love now, agape love, is not conditional upon what you're receiving, what the other person is giving. Love is something that you choose to do, that you demonstrate in all things. And it's needed for this unity. That Paul goes on to say, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father, of all i like how the the new living translation puts that that whole you know um uh endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace oh no bearing with one another in love look at what the new living translation says here for verse two it says um always be humble and gentle be patient with each other making allowance for each other's faults because of your love See, when we're really walking in love, as we saw in Galatians, is the fruit of the Spirit, love. You're no longer going to be looking at other people, picking out their faults, being judgmental, coming down on them, thinking you're better. Man, you're going to, out of love, be looking at other people in a way as, as Christ would look at them. And Paul reminds them and us that we're to be one. See, disunity in the church has been, I think, one of the greatest disservices to bringing glory to Christ. Many people have seen the bickering, backbiting, and brutality that takes place among believers in church. And it turns them away completely. I'm sure all of us have encountered people that said, I, I don't want to go to church because I just see people that are just so against each other, fighting, quarreling. Yeah, Paul says, we're on the same team. We're, we're one body who has one spirit, one Lord, one faith. 
And when we're unified, we bring glory to God. And we also see the purpose of the church listed here in verse 11 of chapter 4. It says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work in ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, which is Christ. So we exist so that we can equip one another and see us growing in the unity of the faith that you might become perfect, more like Christ, and continue to grow up in all things in Christ. Basically, know, grow, and show. It's right there in Ephesians 4 for us here. That's what we are to be about as a church. And in order for these things to be happening, we need to be taking a couple specific steps of action. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that we have the Holy Spirit. And he's working in us from the inside out. But there are some real practical things that we can do to be walking worthy of the calling. Look at chapter 4, verse 22. Paul says this, verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, put off the things that were a part of the old person. So many times people are like, well, I'm just waiting, you know, for the Lord to do that work. As Paul's just saying, listen, just stop doing that. Take it off. Put it off. Don't keep letting that be a part of your life. Sometimes those are just very simple, conscious decisions that we make. And then there are those that focus simply on putting off these things. I don't want to do that. I got to put it off. Can't it? And they feel, remember, let's put on the things of Christ. Right? Let's put on these things here now that are a part of Christ. Let's renew our mind in these things. Paul continues to say in verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification and it may impart grace to the hearers. And, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Again, he says, let it be put away. It's not, oh, I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit to continue to transform me, renew me. I'm just, you know, yeah, I know I'm bitter and I'm cursing, but, you know, one day the Lord will take care of that. No, put it off. Don't do it. That's what Paul is saying here. Put it away. Let it not be a part of you. That's a decision that we make. And then he says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. I love that. See, when we begin to understand, being kind to somebody can be a hard thing. Can we just admit? Certain people, being kind is hard. Right? Would you agree? Amen? Anybody? Okay. I just wanted to see who would actually raise their hand so I can pray for them because, no, I'm just teasing. It's true, right? But, here's the amazing thing. 
is when, when Paul says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because Christ did that for you. When I begin to realize I didn't deserve any of that. Jesus didn't need to be kind to me. Jesus didn't need to forgive me, but he did. Makes me realize, man, some of these people that might be hard to be kind to or to be forgiving towards, they don't need to deserve it. I need to do it because it's what I've received from Jesus. And I know that when I begin to demonstrate those things, man, I, I just I just get freed up all the more to experience the great joy of Jesus. I'm not being held back by any kind of bitterness or letting the enemy in by holding back, thinking I'll forgive them when they come and apologize to me first. Not only to have those attitudes, again, in grace, be kind, tender heart, forgive them. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Amen? Thankful for that. Well, continuing on here, we've got to move along here. So, chapter 5, Paul continues on. In verse 8, let me read verse 8. For you were once darkness. Again, this just goes in line with, again, why we need to let these things out. And how we need to demonstrate these things to other people. Because you were once in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 10. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So remember, you've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed. You've been spared from the agony of a sinful life. So don't go back to it. You're now light in the Lord, so live like it. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have fellowship with those who are in the dark. That, you know, like it says there, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Some Christians will go, oh, well, I can't hang out with that person. I can't go with those people. No, Paul is implying, don't participate in the things that they're doing. It doesn't mean you remove yourself altogether because we're called to go and be light in those situations. Be a witness. Don't be afraid to be different than the world. Don't be afraid to stick out for the right reasons. Let them see that you have a better way, a more fun way, and it's found in Jesus Now, this changed life and this worthy walk should certainly be demonstrated in our closest of relationships. So Paul addresses a few of them in the next number of verses, beginning with husbands and wives. And Paul lays out some specific responsibilities for each wives. Look at what it says here in verse 22. You're called to submit to your husbands. Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. These verses often get a big shout of amen from the men, and a big shout of amen must have wrote that, you know, from the ladies. They're like, this doesn't add up. This isn't right here. Now, you have to catch what Paul is revealing here. Wise, he says, you're to submit to your husband's, as to the Lord, we oftentimes forget that. One way that women show that Jesus is truly the Lord of their lives is how they treat their husbands, how they respond to their husbands. See, when you put yourself under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it becomes no great thing to bring yourself under the submission of your husband. It's what Jesus has called you to do. Now, 
when those things are being challenged in the home, it's not often the result of a submission problem, but it's the result of a lordship problem, rather. When the woman tries to be the head over her husband, she's taking the place of Jesus. Her struggle, then, is not with her husband, but it's with Jesus. Now, before you ladies get too angry with me for speaking the truth here, hopefully you're receiving that, but listen to what Paul says to husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How did Christ demonstrate his love for the church? He died for her. And you've heard me say many times at Riverside here, but if you ask me, if you ask me, you ladies have the easier of the responsibilities here. I'll take submission over dying any day because that's what us husbands are called to do, to die to love our wives as Christ of the church were to surrender ourselves, yield, die for our wives. That's what we're called to do. So I don't want to hear you ladies complaining about submitting. Think about the role of the husbands. Die. Love your wives that way. So husbands, your role may be as the head of the home, but that gets exercised by your sacrifice and your service. In loving your wife, it means you put her before your needs. You're not the big boss man. You're the one that sets the tone of love and sacrifice in the home. Now, you see, problems typically set in when we begin to worry about how our spouse is doing with their roles and responsibilities. When we begin to look and go, you know, my wife, I don't think she's really submitting to me very well. Or the wife goes, you know, my husband just doesn't seem to be very loving towards me. And what we oftentimes begin to do is think, I need to help them submit better. I need to tell them. I maybe need to kind of put on the, the heavy hat right now. Or the woman says, my husband's not being very loving, so I need to show him that he's got to be loving towards me. And in order to show him that, I got to kind of, you know, put on the pants a little bit now in the, in the home and sort of dictate what needs to happen here. And what happens when we begin to focus on what our other spouse is doing or not doing and think that we got to come alongside and help is that we just create this, this cycle uh, of tension that goes on, this, this conflict that begins to happen in the home. And it's a vicious cycle of fighting and frustration that takes place. Can I just say that God hasn't called you to make sure your spouse is holding up their end of the deal. God's not needing you to make sure that your spouse is being who they are to be according to Ephesians 5. God has called you to take care of your responsibility. Are you loving your wife the way that Christ has demonstrated that love towards us? Are you submitting to your husband the way that Christ has called you to in more so submitting to him? See, when we begin to focus on our own roles, guess what happens? And this is the great thing about this. Is when we begin to say, as husbands, I got to step up and love my wife better. And we begin to demonstrate that sacrificial love. Guess what? Your wife is going to go, wow, what an incredible guy. Submitting to him is not just easy now. It's enjoyable. I want to submit to a man that loves me that way. And when a wife is submitting to her husband, guess what the husband's thinking? 
man, I've never been more in love with my wife. She is such a wonderful person in how she just comes alongside and supports me. Man, that's something that I want to get behind and just demonstrate a life of love now towards that. When we focus on what we're called to do and not on what the other person is called to do, you're going to see that vicious cycle stop and, and just this beautiful work of peace taking place in our homes and in our relationships. So Paul says in verse 33 at the end of chapter 5, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's very simple. Wives, respect your husband. Submit to them. They need that. And husbands, love your wives. Because they need that. And when you're doing that, man, you're going to have a blessed relationship. That's what God's called us to. Now, these same principles get lived out in, in family relationships and in work relationships, as chapter 6 takes us into. Now, y- y- you know chapter 6 here? Children, obey your parents and Lord, for that's right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise. I love that. Hey, this is something that's with a promise. It's going to go well with you. It's going to be a blessing when you do. It's the same way in our relationship with the Lord. When we walk in obedience, it, same thing can be said. It will go well with you. It's going to be a blessed ride when you do that. And it's important that as parents, fathers are being called out here, not to, not to provoke your children around, not to, not to exacerbate them, but to love them. Be, again, kind, gracious towards them. Admonish them in the Lord. And in, in your relationships at work, Man, you may have a boss that you just can't stand. But again, you're to serve them with, with fear and trembling. And do so as unto Christ. It's a great thing. You may not like what you're doing. You may not like the people you work with. But do all things unto Christ. Serve him through it. Now, let me just read something that Skip Heidsick has said. He says this, What I've discovered is that whether it's a husband and a wife, children and parents, or employees and bosses, if each approaches the other with humility, willing to fulfill their God-given role in that relationship, then submission becomes the oil that lubricates the gears that make the relationship run smoothly. That's how you avoid the grind that life can become when relationships get messy. That's the pathway to joy. Now, one would think that living this way is going to be a breeze. As long as I'm walking, just like we've been seeing here from chapters 4 to 6, in a way that's worthy of our calling in lowliness and gentleness and in grace and all these things, man, we're going to be Mr. and Mrs. Popular. Everybody's going to want to hang out with us. Everything's going to just be so rosy and comfortable. That's the way we can oftentimes think and be mistaken in thinking that way. But Paul says, man, this isn't so, unfortunately. See, living this way now, going to put a target on you christian life is not one that's lived on the playground it's typically lived on the battleground living in christ and for christ makes you a target for a world that is in opposition to christ if you're living this way like paul's laying out in ephesians there's gonna be people that are going to come against you but paul gives us some hope and encouragement and it comes through the armor that we're given for the battle look at chapter 6 verse 10 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So first of all, recognize that we're not alone. We are the Lord. So don't rest on your strength or ability. Rather, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Don't fight that on your own. Secondly, we have to understand our battle is not with other people. Our battle is not with other people. Oh, it's true that they might aggravate or frustrate you, but that's not your enemy. Our battle is against the devil and his minions. So when you're in an argument with your spouse or children or your boss, just know that behind that is the enemy that's wanting to stir up the flesh and drag us into a deeper mess if he can. Don't fight in the natural. The battle is is spiritual, Paul says there. It's against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's the work of the devil that's at play right there. Using those things to start. But don't make that your battle. Take that to heart when when you have a a hard discussion with your spouse or with kids or with a, a co-worker. Don't let that be the battle. Realize, man, there's a spiritual work going on that the enemy would love to drag me down in. But I'm not going to fall prey to that. I'm going to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we also see that we're given protection. We're given armor. The armor of God, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we're equipped with all these, this armor of God. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the enemy is going to want to come in and put doubts in your mind to think you're not worthy. You don't deserve to be saved. Well, first of all, this breastplate of righteousness reminds me that it's the righteousness of Christ that I stand in. The enemy is going to come in and invade the mind. That becomes oftentimes, again, that, that battleground that the enemy wages war on is in our mind. Putting doubts in your mind, putting temptation in your mind. Have that helmet of salvation. It says, no, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I'm not going to fall prey to these things. That belt of truth is the thing that holds all of these things together. Without that belt, the armor is not going to be sitting right. It's the word of God that we have here truth standing upon the truth of god that we need to have as that foundation for us the sword of the spirit it's the only weapon that's not just defensive but offensive just as jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness what did he do with the enemy quoted scripture back to him use the word of god to stand your ground to fight through and keep moving forward in that gospel of peace, our feet being prepared with the gospel of peace. Now, what's interesting is that some 35 years after this letter was written, the church of uh, uh, the church of Ephesus was being addressed again in God's word. This time in Revelation chapter two, verse four. Only this time is being addressed as to how it had left its first love. See, they were remaining a strong church in works and in diligence but it's becoming more about their stand on issues than it was about their walk with the Lord. They didn't sway in their doctrine, but rather in their devotion with the Lord. 
and for the Lord. How we need to be careful of that today. This letter is full of such richness that if we hold tightly to it, it will only help us in continuing on in our first love with the Lord and remaining faithful in devotion to him. May this walk through Ephesians be that reminder for us of the riches that we have in Christ. And again, cause us to come all the more in just that heart of devotion and praise and thanks to Jesus and the desire now just to spend time with Jesus knowing what he has done for us. Okay, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this night together. God, for the people you brought out, Lord, and I pray that the things that we've looked at here today through this great epistle of Ephesians, Lord, would be just a great reminder for us of the riches we have in you, Jesus. The glorious realities that we have now, the blessings that we have because of you and what you've done for us, Lord. But I I pray, too, that these would be things that we truly appropriate for ourselves, knowing that you've done the work of saving us by your grace. We don't earn any of these things. But because you've done these things now, may we walk worthy of that calling. May we demonstrate a life, Lord, that reflects just the beauty of Jesus, the glories of God. So lead us on. Help us in these things. Strengthen us. May we, again, just go forth in, in, in the power of your might, Lord. So we just ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.